This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, how California and Governor Jerry Brown are fighting climate change and Donald Trump. We'll speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Miriam Powell about her new book, The Browns of California. Also later in this hour, we take up the vital question, is Melania Trump a hero of the people or an accomplice of evil? Amy Willens has the answer. First up, John Nichols reports on a new standard of resistance by an elected official in Washington. Trump Watch starts right now. For today's political update, we turn once again to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. Hey, brother. It's great to be with you. Well, uh, anything happening in Washington today? How are those uh, Kavanaugh confirmation hearings going? Yeah, I'm pretty dizzy right now, man. <laughs> I hope I uh, hope I can uh, settle into this conversation. It's hard to keep up with everything that's happening. Um, and I suppose there are many people that will accuse me of being dizzy at any, any moment. No, I would never say um, that. Yeah, but... Uh, Look, this was this was quite a day, um, and and really the best way to measure this day is to go back to um, last evening. Last evening, uh, uh, as the hearing, the confirmation hearing for Brett Kavanaugh kind of edged into uh, evening, uh, Cory Booker began to ask Kavanaugh a series of questions some of which were based on emails that had been labeled, quote-unquote, committee confidential. Uh, In so doing, he forced information that had initially been classified into the discourse. He was called out for that. Um, He acknowledged he was violating the rules. He had sort of intense back and forth uh, overnight. The documents were eventually released. Uh, Booker and, and Cornyn this morning uh, went at each, or Senator Cornyn from Texas went at each other at, at a visceral level. Um, through the day, Booker has continued, and other members of the Judiciary Committee on the Democratic side have continued to release these so-called uh, committee confidential documents. This is a very big deal because it, it's a, a signal of two things. Number one, of how important some of the stuff that is classified and some of the stuff that hasn't yet been released is, how consequential it is with regard to this nomination. And two, it signals a real, I think, you know, next stage in the intensity of these judicial deliberations, these confirmation hearings, because you're, you're literally seeing uh, senators say they're willing to violate the rules of the Senate to um, either stall or, or at least to open up this process and in the intensity of uh, what happened last night, what happened this morning kind of spread through the day, um, not just with Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and some of these other senators who've really been on fire um, and, and raising fundamental issues uh, throughout this process, but with some of the senior senators, uh, if you watched uh, the uh, questioning of Kavanaugh, by Senator Patrick Leahy, uh, the senior senator on the committee, um, it, it was it was remarkable. Uh, Leahy was very respectful, very uh, calm in his questioning, 
and yet he essentially accused Kavanaugh of lying about receiving stolen documents. I mean, it, this is, it's, it's amazing. And, and again, uh, something on a level that we've really never seen. Now, a, let me, let me, I, I want to ask you some more about this Cory Booker yeah. uh, situation. I know that he said that he, he understood that he was violating the rules of the Senate and that he could be, potentially, he could be expelled from the Senate for releasing these committee confidential documents. Mm -hmm. uh, you just, you said they were classified. Classified by who? Classified usually means national security classification, law enforcement classification. Who classified yeah, I, these? Uh, it's a committee. <laughs> you know, or, or actually, in fairness, it, it was sort of the, these are documents that were made available to committee members to review. But then they were told, well, you can't talk about this in public, right? So you can know these things, but you can't talk about these things. Um, and that's, that was a committee rule, not one agreed to by the Democrats, but a rule that just sort of hovered over this process. Um, and there's a lot of lack of clarity about how, it all, how all the elements came together. But the interesting thing is that the person given the power to release the documents was not the committee chair, but an attorney for former President George W. Bush, because a lot of these key documents were from the Bush administration. Now, they're documents that Kavanaugh wrote, you know, emails, things of that nature, but the, um, the, they became the possession of the Bush administration or the Bush, you know, after presidency, so to speak. Right. And so you had this convoluted situation. And it's very confusing. The one thing to understand is that the lawyer for the Bush administration has been declassifying things. And so, you know, this thing that Booker brought up was declassified. Something Macy Hirano brought up was declassified. And there's confusion about when and how through the day they've been, the Senate Democrats have been releasing more of these so-called committee confidential documents and emails. But at the core of this thing is what you brought up, John, and that's the heart of the matter. These things are described as classified. In fact, John Cornyn, in attacking Cory Booker uh, today, you know, essentially accused him of releasing classified information in the kind of language that sounded like you were, you know, like revealing troop movements or something like that during a war. Yeah. Very serious charge. But that's not what this was at all. I mean, and, and as Booker said, this is a sham. This is a, a scheme by committee Republicans, the White House, uh, people that want to advance the Kavanaugh nomination, to take information that is controversial, but that is not related to national security or public safety or anything like that, and to say, well, you can't look at this stuff. You can't talk about this stuff. It's an absurdity. And what Booker did um, in a very uh, intense, very, you know, out there way you know, you know, over the last 24 hours is reveal that sham. And now, I think what he did was a service. Uh, he's mm -hmm. being attacked for it. He's been accused of grandstanding, histrionics, trying to advance a presidential campaign. So, you know, it's a wild day. Uh, but so, if you so, took away all the charges and countercharges, at the core of it is and exposing the fact that what we're being told has to be secret doesn't have to be secret. And 
other members of the committee, I just want to underline this, Democratic members of the committee are following the example of Cary Booker. You mentioned Maisie Hirono from Hawaii. She has released committee classified documents. Did Kamala Harris also uh, do that? I think she I, said she was going to, or yeah. she was willing to, or something like that. Right. Oh, there's, a, yeah, that, there's two, two different stages of things here that are happening, and it's a really intense day. So, you know, what may get released at one point, yeah. you know, minute to minute is, a, is something you've got to keep on top of. But um, here's the, the heart of the matter is this. Uh, there was a suggestion that Booker could be expelled from the Senate right. for... Uh, releasing these documents. And Cornyn, John Cornyn, one of the senior Republicans on the committee, not, he hasn't been there that long, but he's, he's a, sort of a, a very prominent player, close to the administration, also somebody who uh, is a real driving force in the Senate. Um, he seemed to, to embrace this idea. Um, and so then you saw committee Democrats step up, led by Dick Durbin, mm-hmm. to say, you know, we're with Cory Booker here. We're, we are... We stand with him, yeah, and we're willing to to face the charges he faces. Now, in some cases, people like Macy Hirono have actually, uh, you know, spoken about, tried to force the release of particular documents. Hirono has a very important thing that she's focusing on, and that is uh, the fact that some of these emails contain information about Kavanaugh's thinking as regards protections for Native Hawaiians. Now, that's a very big issue for her constituents. Yeah. also one that goes to a lot of the material in these documents, which is very revealing as regards his attitudes about discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you read what he wrote, um, in a number of cases, he's basically suggesting that um, the government should be very cautious in its embrace of remedies to historic discrimination, to racial profiling. Uh, it, it, at one point, uh, he seems to be suggesting that um, while there might be discrimination, uh, and while it might even be shown, uh, the government shouldn't be in the, in the process, in the work of trying to remedy so-called private discrimination, yeah. i.e., discrimination by non-governmental entities. Well, my friend, to give you a sense of how relevant that is to a Supreme Court nomination, just think about cake bakers <laughs> yeah. and marriage equality. Yeah. That's a, no, the wonderful, fr- the wonderful phrase in the, in the Kavanaugh uh, memo that was uh, re- released uh, by Cory Booker was uh, that the government can be deliberately indifferent to discrimination. Uh, I hadn't heard yeah. that before, but it's a, listen, John, we, we want to. So the point here is uh, whether or not you regard this as a smoking gun that should sink his nomination. Certainly, this is something highly relevant to considering him and keeping it a secret is an offense to uh, to democracy. That's the point here, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And and also there's people saying, well, yeah, but Booker was talking about some of this stuff as it was being released or as it had already been released. There's people accusing him of grandstanding and stuff like this. Well, you know what? With all due respect, if there's any point at which I'd like a senator to grandstand, yeah. it's about getting information out that powerful people didn't want you to know. 
So, it, it, I mean, I, I just think that, it, that this is an important moment. I, I want to uh, switch to moment. a new topic. New topic now. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back in history two days to Tuesday night in Boston with the primary vi- victory uh, of Ayanna Presley, who will become the first African-American to represent Massachusetts in the House of Representatives in our history. Who is Ayanna Presley? Well, she's a Boston City Council member, 44 years old, African-American woman, running in the only district in Massachusetts that is majority-minority. The district was represented uh, by a, a very solid and, and quite progressive member of Congress, Mike Capilano, um, who had been there for 10 terms. Uh, Ayanna Presley stepped up and said, look, in this Trump era, we need a new kind of congressional representation, a representation that is more engaged with the grassroots, more passionate, more uh, determined, more focused on a, on a broader range of issues. Uh, you know, she, she really made a, a, a powerful argument for uh, a new sort of representation. This is not the first time this has happened in history. Um, you know, back during the Vietnam War, you saw folks like Ron Dellums and Elizabeth Holtzman defeat Democratic incumbents on the argument that they simply weren't doing enough uh-huh. uh, to stand up to folks like Richard Nixon. And so uh, that's what you're seeing uh, with Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others. Uh, with Ayanna Presley, this is an especially important and, and I think notable result because she ran on a stunningly detailed program. I mean, it really stood out. She had, she had a platform for her congressional campaign that was more detailed and better in a whole bunch of ways than the Democratic Party's platform nationally. Yeah, um, She was talking about a lot of issues. She was very, very focused in this. And one thing to understand is she is a veteran political figure. She happened to run as an insurgent. She happened to run as somebody who's very, very progressive. She took on a sitting in Democratic congressman. But she is a Boston city councilor. Before that, she was a longtime aide to Senator John Kerry. Uh, she knows politics. She knows how Washington works. And she is now certain to go to Washington. This is a very Democratic district. And she will arrive as an insurgent, as a change agent, um, who also knows how the thing works. My sense is she's going to hit the ground running and be a, a very notable member of Congress very, very quickly. And there's one other thing I want to underline about Ayanna Presley's victory in the uh, Democratic primary to uh, represent uh, Boston and south of Boston uh, in the House. Turnout. Usually the turnout in this district for primaries is 60,000 votes. Uh Tuesday, the turnout there was 102,000. That is the key. We've been saying this for a long time. Register the unregistered, turn out the people who don't usually vote, and you can get much more activists, much more engaged, much more committed progressive candidates. This is one who's for Medicare for all. She wants to strip ICE of immigration enforcement and deportation powers. Uh, she's really going to uh, shake things up in Washington. And the, t- and the key to getting her elected was to increase turnout by, by 50%. And that's where she put her energy, not into raising money for TV ads or hiring consultants or doing polling. We've been talking about that here for a long time, and that's a 
good example of it. John, we've only got about three or four minutes left here. One more thing we got to talk to you about. Obama is coming to Orange County on Saturday to campaign for the Democrats working to flip uh, the, those uh, seven Republican districts in California that voted for Hillary. What do you make of this? Huge. I mean, it's a big deal. Uh, we're, we're always keeping an eye on what Barack Obama does because he is, uh, by any measure, the most successful uh, Democratic political figure in uh, recent history. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's a guy who was twice elected president of the United States with a majority vote. And that's an important thing to remember. Uh, you know, Donald Trump didn't get a majority of the vote. Uh, George Bush didn't get it in 2000. Bill Clinton never got a majority in either of his races because of Ross Perot's candidacy. And so here you have with Barack Obama somebody who succeeded in assembling a massive coalition in favor of the Democratic Party. If he goes back out, I think especially in the context of the Trump presidency, uh, he has tremendous potential uh, based on memory and based on you know current skills, uh, I think to rally a, a great number of Democrats, to give them hope that the midterm elections could actually be a time of successful pushback against the Trump presidency, against the Trump administration, potentially a moment at which you could build congressional majorities capable of checking and balancing this president. Uh, it's, it's very significant that Obama's out there. And here's the really significant thing, John. It's September. <laughs> Usually when a former president steps up, and they do, he's not the first one to do this, they, they tend to do so later in the game, in October, in the, you know, kind of the heart of the matter. Obama's doing it in a targeted way in key districts in September. If he keeps, keeps this up through the rest of the fall, then you're going to have a situation where, yes, Donald Trump is going to be out on the road doing lots of rallies, doing lots of politics. But you're going to have a Democrat out there doing lots of rallies and lots of politics who is able to draw you know, remarkable crowds. Uh, and perhaps to have a real impact. So Obama's presence is a big deal, as is that of Bernie Sanders and, and a variety of other folks. Obama's not the only one who matters in this regard, but it, it is distinctive, it is notable that a former president is stepping up in this way. John Nichols with today's political update. I think we're all a little dizzy at this point. Uh, John, uh, <laughs> read him at thenation.com. John, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. Pleasure, my friend. Take care. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Jerry Brown versus Donald Trump when our program continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Amy Willens on Melania. But first, 
California is the anti-Trump capital of the nation. And the governor of California leading the fight against Trump, of course, is Jerry Brown, who's about to complete his final term in office. For comment, we turn to Miriam Powell. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author of an award-winning biography of Cesar Chavez. We talked about it here a couple of years ago. Now she has a new book published two days ago, The Browns of California, the family dynasty that transformed a state and shaped a nation. Miriam Powell, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, your book is about Jerry Brown's father, Pat Brown, who was the state's governor from 1959 to 1967. And of course, Jerry, who first was governor from 75 to 83, then elected again in 2011, now finishing his final term. Next week, next week, Jerry Brown is hosting the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. It's a huge thing, an unofficial follow-up to the Paris uh, climate uh, meetings of 2015. All the major nations will be attending, with one exception, our own. So Jerry Brown will greet the nations of the world as the leader of the most important state, uh, resisting Trump on the all-important issue of climate change. We hope, we hope uh, he will announce that he's going to sign the bill that will mandate that California generate 100% clean electricity by 2045. That will be a huge step for what is the world's fifth biggest economy. My question for you is how, how did Jerry Brown become such a strong environmentalist, one of the world's climate action leaders? You know, two, two, two immediate responses to that. You know, one is that it's one of the ways people ask me, did he change? What's different between Jerry 1 and Jerry 2? His commitment and interest in the environment is one of the through themes that, you know, in which he's been very consistent. He went in 1992 to Rio de Janeiro to one of the climate uh, change, you know, the early climate change conferences at the time. And I think that his commitment to it, I mean, obviously reflects his own values, but also says something about California, that California, the environment in California, I mean, as someone who is a native New Yorker, um, you know, the environment is a very different issue in the West. And Someone like Ronald Reagan, who we think of as being a very anti-environment James Watt president, um, as governor of California, had a very strong environmental record. The California Air Resources Board created under Ronald Reagan, CEQA, signed by Ronald Reagan. And that kind of reflects, I think, a sensibility. And, and one of the things that I tried to do in this book is to use the Brown family, all four generations, to address some of the key themes in Cal that make California special and different. And I think the environment is one of them. I learned from your book that in Jerry Brown's 1980 presidential campaign, this is when he was challenging Jimmy Carter at the mm -hmm. end of Jimmy Carter's first term, his, his uh, slogan, Jerry Brown's slogan was, serve the people, protect the environment. That's a fantastic slogan, I have to and say. And explore the universe. And explore the, third part the universe. Right. Yeah. What did he? What did he mean by? What was all that about? And that was a very carefully crafted phrase. And in fact, he has referred to that in some recent speeches that I've heard, as sort of still being very much, you know, what he is about. And um, you know, he the, there are ideas that, as you 
I'm sure recall, and many of your <laughs> listeners do, he was famously named Governor Moonbeam by the Chicago columnist Mike Royko because of his interest in exploring space and in having a California satellite. And his commitment at that point and interest in solar power was sort of thought of as being a little wacky in the 70s, um, obviously very mainstream today. A little history. Return with us now to Berkeley in 1964. <laughs> okay. One of my favorite moments, the free speech movement is transforming student politics. Pat Brown is governor of California. Uh, you write you write that the free speech movement left Pat Brown, quote, hurt, outraged, and bewildered, close quote. Why? Pat Brown had an enormous commitment and affection for the University of California. He never went to college. He went directly from Lowell High School into Knight Law School. His wife, Jerry's mother, who was quite brilliant, did go to the University of California at Berkeley. And as governor, you know, Pat was responsible for the master plan that is to this day the governing document on, on higher education in California. So he viewed the university as this incredible sort of resource. And the students, while he supported their right to protest, he did not agree with the tactics. And he felt just kind of confused by why they were so angry and being, in his view, unreasonable. And, you know, it's sort of even later on when he gave interviews in the 70s about it, he still kind of went back and said, well, what was I supposed to do? You know. <laughs> well, just to remind <laughs> us what the free speech movement was about, students returning from civil rights work in the South, voter registration in the South, set up tables to raise money for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Turns out this is against the university's rules at right. the time. Right. You are not allowed to engage in this kind of fundraising politicking on campus. They said, this is a this is a crucial part of our lives and our country, and the university should uh, allow us to do this. And if the university is going to arrest the people who are doing this, we are going to protest. Seems to me that that's not too hard to understand. <laughs> no, I think it was the taking over of Sproul Hall ah, and occupying the building and that little <laughs> business there that you know got him. But even there, you know, he there's a still a little bit of a question as to who decides and when and under what, you know, under what auspices to send the cops in to arrest everybody and drag people out of the building. Um, but Ed Meese was probably involved in a, and, and a key a key person in that, that decision because Pat originally says he's in Los Angeles. They call him. He says, I will come back tomorrow and go in with Clark Kerr and try to talk to the students. And then without actually notifying Kerr, although Kerr becomes the villain in this, um, they they make the decision to go in. Uh, you mentioned the um, the master plan for higher education. Uh, that's the one that set up the university, the state colleges, and the community colleges, their relationship to each other. Uh, that is the work, as you say, of Pat Brown, and it's part of what I what I think we can call the world we have lost of the giant projects to transform the state, the landscape of the state, the lives of everybody in the state. The Pat Brown era 
they undertook tasks that seem so far out of reach today. Remind us, remind us about that world we have lost. I, the, I mean, it, you know, Pat Brown is the right person to be governor at that moment in time. California is growing by thousands of people every day in those post-war years. And so, you know, he, I mean, roads, bridges, transportation, the state water project is the other, you know, enormous undertaking that he does. Remember, it's a time when there is no such thing as an environmental impact statement, so it's a little bit easier to do some of those things quickly. Uh, but he really pushed that through, and he did um, shepherd the master plan, which, you know, there were three new university campuses built in the 60s from scratch, San Diego, Santa Cruz, and Irvine, Irvine, my employer. <laughs> Thank you very much. In fact, I think one of my all-time favorite pictures from California history is Clark Kerr, Lyndon Johnson, and the first president of uh, uh, chancellor of UC Irvine with shovels, shovels digging right. digging uh, in the dirt of the Irvine Ranch. And, it's I mean, and Irvine, the city, really grows up around the university, which is just you know remarkable. We're speaking with Miriam Powell. Her new book is The Browns of California, The Family Dynasty That Transformed a State and Shaped a Nation. She'll be discussing the book tonight in L.A. at Diesel Bookstore at 6.30. Is that right, 6.30? That's right. Diesel is in the Brentwood Country Mart, 26 in San Vicente, wonderful place. She'll also be in conversation about the book with Kathleen Brown at the L.A. Public Allowed series on September 17th. The Downtown Public Library, of course, 5th and Flower, that's at 7.30 p.m. Political change. LBJ, in 1964, was the last Democrat to win the presidential election Mm -hmm. in California for three decades. Mm -hmm. For 30 years after uh, Lyndon Johnson and Pat Brown, California was a Republican state, especially in presidential politics. How did that happen, and how did that finally change? In 30 seconds. <laughs> um, you know, uh, people, we think of California today, for all the reasons you said in your introduction, as being the ultimate blue state. There were only, there have been only four Democrats elected governor of California in modern times, and two of them were named Brown. And, it's you know, amazing. if Gavin Newsom wins as expected, it'll be the first Democrat-Democrat transition in, you know, since the 1800s. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a complicated equation because although on paper the Democrats are, you know, clearly, you know, outweigh, uh, you know, outnumber Republicans significantly, but political parties in California, as you know, are not the same as they are in other parts of the country. And so the, 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 the power tends to be, I mean, even each of the Browns does not get elected through the mechanism of the Democratic Party, but because of their own operations. You know, so, Pat, I'll tell you one little story about Pat Brown, which is that when he was elected governor when he, in 1960, um, the, the Abe the former senator from Connecticut, turned to him at one point and said, who decided you should run for governor? And Pat just looked at him like, what are you talking about? I did. You know? <laughs> so, you know... So what happened between 64 and 68 to mark the change uh, to from uh, Pat Brown to Ronald Reagan? Actually, you only need two words, Berkeley and Watts. That's right. 
That's right. And Berkeley and the student, you know, Reagan's most powerful campaign slogan was clean up the mess at Berkeley. And also Pat Brown had been around for eight years, also the Rumford Housing Act and and a lot of um, backlash against him for supporting fair housing policies combined with Watts um, and, and the Vietnam War. Now, I have to ask you one key question since we are here at KPFK. Jerry Brown hosted a radio program on he Pacifica. Did. We broadcast it here on KPFK. It was a great show. We were honored and thrilled to have it. Why did he do it? Why was Jerry Brown on Pacifica? It's Right now, it's inconceivable. <laughs> you know, we have Amy Goodman. <laughs> Well, first of all, Jerry Brown on Pacifica, if you look back at what he, the dialogues he had on Pacifica, they were quite different from the dialogues that he has now. He has a fascination with talking to interesting, smart people, and it was a vehicle for him to do that. And he was trying to build a constituency in Oakland prior to running for mayor, as he did. Oakland is the key. So this was KPFA was where this Correct. was based. And he, he had finished his first two terms as governor, was preparing to run in Oakland, kind of a left-wing place now that you mention it. Correct. And it'd been, remember, he'd been out of office since 1982. So he was looking throughout that time for a way back in. He was state party chair for a couple of years. That was not a great fit. He ran for president again in 1992. He came back with his We the People. You know, he, I mean, the, the, the radio show grew out of We the People and the idea that he did not accept any campaign contributions over $100. He had a 1-800 number. Let us pause. Let us let me underline that. <laughs> Sherry Brown, running for president, did not accept any campaign contributions greater than $100. This is decades, decades before Bernie Sanders. Correct. He understood and talked openly uh, about the the dangers, the disasters of big money in politics. Absolutely true. And he also used a lot of the techniques that later were used by, by others, Howard Dean, Bernie Sanders, and so on. He literally had a 1-800 number, and that was how they raised money. And there, you can still see T-shirts sometimes that people have with the 1-800 number on them. And it was a way also, again, back into the national political spotlight, not necessarily a way to win. And in your book, The Browns of California, you have some great quotes from him about his experience of having dinner with the uh, lobbyists from the oil companies and uh, the people who the actually corrupting influences. The people who actually, you know, run California that he knew only too well. I want to get back to the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco next week. Jerry Brown is in the hero of this event, but he's also going to be the target of some big protest demonstrations led by some of our friends, especially Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein, mm -hmm. demanding that he go beyond clean electricity, the current leading issue uh, in California in the world, uh, converting to wind and solar, and move to the next great and necessary goal of the climate movement, keep it in the ground. These demonstrations are called Brown's Last Chance. They want him to ban all new drilling for oil and gas in California and then take a truly radical step, announce a phase-out of oil and gas production in California. He's been angry and bitter about these demands. He says this is naive to think that a po any politician in California can completely defy the oil and gas industry, which remains a huge power in the state. 
Uh, can you provide, uh, on the other hand, it's the end of his term, it's the end of his political career. Why not make his last act as governor the boldest and the most necessary action to slow climate change? What, what do you think is going well, on first here? First of all, I mean, I don't, he's been pretty clear about why he doesn't think it's a good idea. So I don't think it's a purely political decision on his part. It's he actually is pragmatic about it and thinks that you don't, that, that, that that's not the way to phase out oil. Um, but also, I mean, how would anything that he does now be more than symbolic since he's not going to be around to actually enact anything, um, you know, more than three months from now? Uh, but, but I, I, you know, I think his, his, he, he has been very clear in his rationale for why he thinks this is a bad idea. Um, does not seem like either side is budged very much yeah. in there. Well, the, the, uh. I call them our friends, point out that under the last eight years of Jerry Brown's governorship, something like 20,000 new oil and gas wells have been authorized by the state. And over his career, he's accepted many millions of dollars from the oil and gas industry. Uh, perhaps uh, it's they argue it is time for a big change. Jerry Brown is a hero of the first phase of the climate movement converting to wind and solar. Now we are at the second phase if we're going to stick to the, if we're going to meet the 2% uh, climate uh, change requirements of the Paris uh, Accord and keep it in the ground. And he could be a leader of this too, but he's he's mad about being pressured on this. He thinks... You know, he's he's already the world leader. Why are they complaining? Well, I, but I think that it's beyond. I mean, I, this is not this is going a little beyond the scope of my book and expertise. Sure. But it seems to me that he's been pretty clear in saying that he does he disagrees with it, not just that he doesn't think that he should be portrayed the way they're portraying him, which is a separate issue, but that he does not think that that's a realistic way to reduce the dependency on oil. And that's a debate okay. one can have. But I think that's his position. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one last thing, little question, the future of California politics. Hmm. Right now, there are no Republicans elected to statewide office. Democrats have close to a supermajority in the state legislature. Most of the Seven remaining representatives in the House uh, from states that Hillary uh, carried two years ago are probably going to be defeated on November 6th. Obama is coming to Orange County on Saturday to help. Um, so California, in some ways, is unbelievably Democratic, and the Republicans have pretty much disappeared from the scene here. On the other hand, more and more Californians are registering as independents, exactly. not as Democrats. What is the future of Jerry Brown's party at the, this season? And well, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about before, where I, I think that people do not identify with political parties in the same way, and the registration numbers, I think, are very significant because the younger people in particular are registering in large numbers as the client to state. And, you know, the, then you have people like Arnold Schwarzenegger um, and and Chad Mays, who was ousted as the Republican minority leader for supporting the cap and trade bill, um, who are sort of talking about some sort of a third way that would be a new, you know, a way to re re reconstruct the Republican Party in some way, whether they ever succeed in that or not. But the, I, I, I don't think that the Democrats... Um, you know, if you, uh, let's put it this way, look at the Democratic Party in the Senate race. 
and you know, and where they overwhelmingly supported Kevin DeLeon, who is likely to not do very well in the general election and did not do particularly well in the primary. So how relevant is the Democratic Party? Harsh, a I, harsh I, light, a harsh I'm, light you know, is being shown I mean, on us here. So I don't know what, you know, I just think that party politics here are so fluid. But on the other hand, we we have, we're going to see, it seems now like, if you follow Cook Political Report, uh, a lot of the remaining Republican representatives mm-hmm. in the House are going to be defeated on November 6, which does make the Democratic Party as an institution look stronger. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's just the Trump effect. But it's going to be a, mm-hmm. a, a, a shift, a notable shift. And there is a demographic shift in the state that has been going on. And, there, you know, Latinos are still do not register to vote and do not vote in the same percentages. And Democrats do not vote in the same percentages as Republicans, but we're seeing that shift over time. Miriam Powell, her new book is The Browns of California, The Family Dynasty That Transformed a State and Shaped a Nation. She'll be discussing the book tonight in L.A. at Diesel Bookstore at 6.30. That Diesel's in the Brentwood Country Mart, 26 in San Vicente. She'll also be in conversation about the book with Kathleen Brown, who we haven't had a chance to talk about, at the L.A. Uh, Public Library Allowed series, September 17th. Downtown Public Library, of course, 5th and Flower Streets. That's at 7.30 p.m. Miriam, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, what about Melania? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. But first, we need to ask the key question of our time. Is Melania Trump a hero of the people or an accomplice to evil? For that, we turn to our senior Melania correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning recent book about Haiti, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Soon I'll be known, though, as the Melania correspondent for Start Making Sense, and that will be the pinnacle of my journalistic career. Well, I'm very (laughs) glad to hear that. You know, the debate over whether Melania is a hero or villain has, for some reason, intensified over the last week or two. Just to set the context here, it's hard for anybody to be the first lady. The first lady is an ornamental role, and it always has been. You're not the elected official. You are simply the spouse, unless you have great force of personality, like Eleanor Roosevelt, who is always cited in this way. You end up decorating the White House and uh, talking about children, not that that's unimportant. There have been campaigns against obesity and for organic food and all sorts of good things. But you don't really have a policy role. You're not the elected official. Just remember, 
What happened to Hillary Clinton when she started to espouse health care? First ladies, as you say, are supposed to have projects, causes. Melania's first project was that she was against cyberbullying. Do you think that she noticed that the biggest cyberbully on the planet was her husband? <laughs> I think she noticed. But Trump's continuing return to Twitter as a as a method of cyberbullying his opponents and calling them out and beating on them, I think it intensified the public's regard of his cyberbullying and therefore her program began to seem more and more like it was in contrast to his behavior. And maybe too, as time went on, she began to think, oh, you know, I really have uh, set myself out on a path against what my husband is doing. Another key moment in the debate over whether Melania is a quiet hero of the resistance was at Trump's State of the Union address where she wore a white pantsuit. Didn't that look a lot like the white pantsuit that Hillary wore when she accepted the Democratic nomination? As a sort of semi-fashion connoisseur, I have to say it didn't really look like it. Like an average person looking at it would say, whoa, that's a white pantsuit, like the white pantsuits Hillary always wears. But in fact, it was a very fashionable, stylish, beautiful pantsuit. <laughs> but it was white, and it was important in that way, unless you think that making, that if your only ability to be articulate in public is through what you're wearing, that that's a sad thing. But it was something. I think it was noticeable. I think it was a commentary. And then uh, more recently, there's been a lot of talk, speculation in the media about Melania wearing something called the pussy bow. What is the pussy bow? The pussy bow, every woman will recognize it, although she might not know the name for it. It makes your uh, blouse, also an old-fashioned word, look just a little more demure. It's got, it's a tie around the neck that comes with the blouse, and uh, it ties under the chin like a bow around the neck of a kitty cat. But it was particularly noticeable when Melania wore a kind of rose magenta pussy bow blouse. I can't believe I'm saying those words in public. <laughs> to the second debate uh, during the presidential campaign, right after the tape had emerged of her husband saying, you just grab him by the pussy. So it was seen to be some kind of a comment. Now, I just, again, have to reiterate, it is tragic to have to make all your comments through fashion. You know, it's you're not free. One other potential fashion statement. During the waves of outrage over Trump's practice of separating children from their mothers at the border, Melania was the only member of the Trump administration or family to actually visit a detention center for uh, new uh, refugees but when she left the White House, she was wearing that jacket. What did it say on the back? It said, I really don't care. Do you? That caused a lot of confusion. Is she saying she doesn't care about the refugee children? If so, why is she going to visit them? What, what do you make of this? Well, I guess we don't know under what conditions she went. So maybe she's saying, I really don't care about them, but my husband is making me go because no one else will go and I'm the girl and I have to go care about children. But the other, many other options for interpreting this, it's almost like being in French uh, critical theory when you watch <laughs> Melania. Uh -oh. The other idea is that 
this was a message to her husband. I mean, after all, when she turned away, she, her back was to the White House. Who would be looking out the window? Not that he was, but her husband and saying, I really don't care what you think about my going to visit this shame of your White House. I'm going anyway. And I think one thing to imagine uh, in this marriage is that she married a very different Donald Trump from the one there is today, at least in his policies. He used to seem liberal because he wanted the New York elite to like him. And now he's gone very hard right. And I'm sure that his politics did not have much to do with her decision about whether to marry him or not. But now she's wedded publicly to this person who perhaps she doesn't like what he's doing. That, to me, is the main thing that maybe these signals make. But I, I really, how can we know? There's one more intriguing move of Melania's that I want to ask you about. She announced she's going to Africa without him. <laughs> that do. seems surprising. You know, why Africa? Does she care about Africa? What does Africa mean to her? It seems like she's just making a choice, like, hmm, he doesn't like Africa, I'll go to Africa. Because uh, there were on his list of shithole nations many African countries. He's not very good at naming them. I can't remember what he calls Namibia and what he calls Zambia, but he gets them confused. Too many syllables. And he hasn't gone. He's never set foot in Africa. So she's going. And the first time he ever mentioned Africa in a policy context was in the last couple of days when he tweeted about news he had heard that in South Africa, white farmers were being massacred. This turns out to be completely untrue. It's a right Maybe Melania lie. is going to investigate the allegations. <laughs> I imagine she'll go to refugee camps and to uh, starvation centers. And schools for girls. And schools for and girls. Usual. <laughs> but, you know, good, good. Yeah. And I think you have to also take into consideration when you think about the messages she seems to be sending and all the resistors among us think that she's maybe a resistor in hiding. She might be an angry wife. She clearly doesn't like to be touched by the president. Who would? <laughs> but, you know, we've seen all the videos of her batting away his hand and pulling her hand away when he grabs it. And he does it for show, but she doesn't want to be part of the farce. That is my interpretation. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. President. She has allegedly, but it doesn't seem very alleged. It seems to be true. A separate bedroom in the White House. Uh, it's even that's even more vivid than on the Dick Van Dyke show with the two beds. Mm. It's another room. And when they travel, she sleeps in another room. And then she was taken off to Walter Reed with an unnamed kidney malfunction for five days where we didn't even know what was happening with her. I mean, there are problems in this marriage. There's an allegation that she lives in Maryland to be near her son and she doesn't even live in the White House. So we can't know what goes on in their marriage, but a lot of this may be her way of choosing to express a difference with him in public because she's angry. And who wouldn't be angry with Stormy Daniels, et cetera, in the, in the mix? And there's the New York Times style section of all places had a page one huge reported story on Melania by Maggie Haberman and her colleagues. Uh, they, they had one fascinating reported fact that Melania watches CNN instead of Fox News. 
Yes, and her, her people were reduced to saying the first lady is allowed to watch whatever she wants to watch. But apparently, according to the New York Times style section, he was not too happy with her watching CNN. He CNN. wants her to watch Fox. CNN, of course, is militantly anti-Trump now, in some ways even more so than MSNBC. So it, if she watches CNN, that's, that's something. She's getting an earful. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... Oh, can I just add one yeah, other thing? Please. So... Donald Trump says LeBron James is a low IQ person or some such. Oh, so-and-so made LeBron look smart. And that's not easy to do. So Melania goes on and starts praising LeBron's programs with children. So that's what I'm saying. It's a reactive thing. She's yeah. pushing back. She is not delighted with him. So the current most active proponent of the view that Melania is a hero of the resistance is the... Uh, New York Times columnist Frank Bruni, who wrote a couple of days ago, quote, she edges ever closer to open contempt for him. She finds increasingly clever ways to show it. It's a perfect wedding of patriotism and payback for all the humiliations that he has heaped on her, close quote. What do you think of Frank Bruni? You know, when you put it all together, which he did in that piece, it's hard to resist coming to that conclusion especially the payback thing. Um, but so what does it mean? You know, what good is it for us? It's interesting about Melania and we can feel sorry for her or whatever. She made her choice, you know, she made her bed. She doesn't really sleep in it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, th their marriage is in a very t tough spot. If she doesn't like him one bit, who knows what the prenup is like? And she has a child with him. Is she going to walk out on that? So... She's maybe doing her best. We've been talking here for this whole time about Melania as some kind of subtle Trump critic. But, of course, there's another view. Melania is not a hero of the people. She's an accomplice of evil. The Times, after that Frank Bruni column appeared, printed comments, 1,688 comments before they closed the comment section. And then they ran two letters. Here's a typical one. Um... Melania Naus chose to marry a racist, crooked boor with a clear history of infidelity and lots of cash. Why do we assume she is somehow captive and protesting? The only valid sign of resistance would be filing for <clears throat> the only valid sign of resistance would be filing for divorce and speaking out. Or, or here's another. What Melania has done, quote, pales in comparison to the workers of Eleanor Roosevelt, both Mrs. Bush's, Hillary Clinton, and Michelle Obama. Melania Trump does not come close. I think you have to say that's true. And I believe that filing for divorce would be an incredible and heroic thing. But I don't think that's going to happen. But I think the thing to ask is, you know, people want to accuse her of being kind of a whore because she married for this huge amount of money, someone we think of as not particularly desirable. Okay. But that that isn't so interesting. What's interesting is how much power does a wife have over a man in power? And I would say in this case, she has very little power and she did get one thing out of him. In spite of all the uh, attacks that he's made on chain migration, she got her parents chain migrated into U.S. citizens. So you got to say she won a little battle there by perhaps by doing all these things we've seen her do. Amy Willens, our chief Melania correspondent.
Amy, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. Always fun, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Miriam Powell. She talked about her new book, The Browns of California, The Family Dynasty That Transformed a State and Shaped a Nation. She'll be talking about the book tonight in L.A. at the Diesel Bookstore at 6.30. Diesel is in the Brentwood Country Mart at 26th and San Vicente. And you can find out more about next week's demonstrations in San Francisco at the Global Climate Action Summit and the demands of the climate activists at the website brownslastchance.org. One word, brownslastchance.org. Thanks also to uh, our other guest, John Nichols, who had today's political update. You can read him at thenation.com. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at this same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.